If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling? The freedom? How the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One. For the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Our culture and our society does not hear this side of the story. They do not know who these women were. Um, to most people, they are just corpses. That was Hallie Rubenhold talking about the victims of Jack the Ripper. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from the author and historian Hallie Rubenhold whose new book explores the 1888 Jack the Ripper murders from an unusual perspective, the lives of those he killed. Shortly before the book was published, Hallie caught up with our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn. So today on the podcast, I'm joined by the author and historian Hallie Rubenhold. Hallie's newest book is The Five, which reconstructs the untold stories of the five women killed by Jack the Ripper, Polly, Annie, Elizabeth, Catherine and Mary Jane. The book focuses for the first time on these women's lives rather than their deaths, using their stories to paint a picture of life as a woman on the poverty line in Victorian Britain. So, Hallie, you're taking a very different angle on a very familiar topic here. Why did you want to tell this side of the story? I wanted to tell this side of the story because this side of the story is is virtually untold. I mean, obviously there are people who have been very interested in the murders for a long time and and know about the women. Um, but I would say generally our culture and our society does not hear this side of the story. They do not know who these women were. Um, to most people, they are just corpses. Jack the Ripper, as we all know, has been widely commercialised and arguably widely glamorised. What do you think is behind this 
obsession with Jack the Ripper and how do you view it? Well, it's interesting because I think, um, obviously, this is considered to be, you know, a great unsolved crime. And people are fascinated with the idea that it is a great unsolved crime. And... um, I think for a lot of people, it becomes like a type of challenge or a parlor game to see, can we solve these Ripper murders once and for all? Um, My feeling about that is I don't think we will ever solve them simply because the body of evidence that we have that exists is so riddled with problems. I just found so many holes. There's so many... (sighs) things that we simply don't know and things we will not know. And also any conclusion that somebody comes up with in this day and age, you know, a lot of of the evidence they use, as I said, is flawed, but it's going to have to measure up to today's legal standards for you know, fingering somebody as the perpetrator. And and we know, for example, so many things, the law has moved on so much since 1888. You know, legal practice, um, what's admissible, what isn't admissible, these types of things we have to think about too. So, um, you know, we're dealing with, with a situation which I don't think will ever be resolved. And I think we need to put it to bed. Something I find found really interesting about your book is it's it's not really a Jack the Ripper book. Uh, unlike most books on the subject, you don't delve into the gory details of the crime. That's really quite irrelevant to you. Why was that um, important to your approach? Well, I really wanted to tell the story of these five women's lives. And I don't believe that the moment of murder is relevant to that. That's actually a different story. That's the story of Jack the Ripper. You know, it's not the story of the, say, you know, 45, you know, 42 years prior to that, um, that these women experience and and their lives in, in Victorian England. So what can you tell us about these five women and the lives that they led? Well, they came from working class backgrounds. All of them came from completely different backgrounds and had different experiences in life. So, you know, it's it, it's rather irked me that, you know, they're kind of all lumped in together, you know, the victims of that of Jack the Ripper, you know, in this kind of assumption is, oh, you know, they're all poor women and they all came from Whitechapel. I mean, the interesting thing is none of them came from Whitechapel. None of them. Um, and most of them, with the exception of one, were in their 40s when they died. Um, that's another thing that people find very interesting. And also, um, well, um, the case that I'm making is is that only two of the five were practicing as sex workers, prostitutes. Um, and it's questionable where the Elizabeth Stride was actually soliciting on the night that she was killed. It's really interesting, this debate you delve into about um, the fact that these women have all been labelled as prostitutes. Firstly, why do you think that's happened? And secondly, how do you think that has shaped the way that people have discussed and remembered the victims and the crimes? My book deals with a lot of the the misunderstanding that we have kind of looking backward at these women and sort of taking everything the Victorian establishment um, said about them on face value. So it kind of picks apart, um, for example, you know, the condition of homelessness 
from that of um, actual prostitution. Um, it, it looks at what happened to these women when they found themselves in very compromised circumstances. You know, the assumption is, and the assumption was at that time, if a woman is very poor, if she doesn't have a husband, if she doesn't have a home, if she's out on the street at night, that was enough for Victorian society to say, well, the only reason why she's out on the street at night is she's a prostitute. In fact, at least in three of the five cases, these women were known to be homeless. And on the nights that they were killed, they did not have their money for their DOS um, in the DOS house, in the lodging house. Um, and, and we know they slept rough. They were found in places where rough sleepers were known to sleep. When they were killed, there was no struggle. There was no noise. They were killed in reclining positions. Why we have chosen to ignore this for 130 years is very interesting. I mean, Initially, it's because um, the concept of homelessness was conflated with that of, of, of street prostitution. Um, but looking backwards, we can now perhaps understand what was going on a bit better and separate out these strands and really ask some very important questions about um, what women, impoverished women, experienced at this time and what their lives were like. Do you think that these moral um, judgments that have been placed on the victims still shape the discourse around them? To a certain degree, yes. I, I mean, I think things are changing. I think it's very interesting, you know, because what I don't want to do is lump everybody together. You know, people think different things about the victims. Um, for some people, Jack the Ripper is just a lot of fun and the victims are incidental to that fun. Um, and, um, you know, people dress up as Jack the Ripper for Halloween, you know, people, you know, enjoy going to this sort of Jack the Ripper London dungeon experience where Jack the Ripper jumps out at them and everybody's screaming and laughing and, you know, um, and they don't really take on board the victims and their experience. I think whether we are willing to admit it or not, we still our society still carries this prejudice um, against sex workers and this idea that um, somehow sex workers are lesser women, they're sub-women, um, and, and women who are bad deserve to be punished. And that really hasn't changed since 1888. I mean, for example, the Suffolk Strangler case, but it's very interesting because the judge in the summing up said to the jury, I want you to lay aside your prejudices about what these five victims, interestingly, it was five victims in that case as well, what these five victims did in their life, you know, the fact that they sold sex, the fact that they took drugs, you know, because regardless of what they did, they did not deserve to be murdered. And the fact that today in the 21st century, a judge still has to instruct a jury to lay aside that type of prejudice is absolutely shocking. As you mentioned, these women all had very different lives and ended up in Whitechapel through very different means, but there are definitely some common strands running through the book. Could you tell us about some of the challenges that face almost all women, uh, working class women at this time, who were on the edge of poverty? The way in which 
19th century society operated was that women were never designed to be breadwinners. The types of work that women could engage in was very, very poorly paid. And they were not designed to support a family because a woman's role, you know, was instituted. You know, it was woman as mother, woman as wife, woman as caregiver, um, not woman at the head of a family. And so the problem was that a lot of women found that, you know, if they were abandoned by their husbands, if their husbands died, if their husbands got ill, um, you know, if their fathers died, if their fathers got ill, they could not bring in enough money to actually sustain their family. So the cards were stacked against them. Um, and so women and their dependents found themselves really kind of dependent on the state, in the workhouse, um, in the worst possible situations. However, I think it's really important to point out that while a lot of women did resort to prostitution, it's important to point out that not every woman did. There were other options. What were some of those other options? If a woman is very poor, she could do things like char work, you know, so working as a charwoman, um, there was sweatshop labor, um, homework, you know, piecing together, you know, boxes and things like that. Um, she could become a domestic servant. All of these things, as I mentioned before, incredibly badly paid and arduous. The hours were very long. Um, the best of that bad bunch really was a life in service. Even though that was extremely hard work, um, a woman could rise through the ranks. You know, I mean, she could start as a scullery maid and become a cook at the end of her life. Um, she could become, you know, a, start as a housemaid, become a lady's maid. And, and then, you know, she's looking at potentially having a pension at the end of that. But that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a life of drudgery and hardship. There, there is so much hardship in this in this book. There's domestic abuse, alcoholism, even sex trafficking. Mm. Um, it paints a very, very grim picture of life as a woman in the 19th century. If if you're in the working classes, would you agree? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it it was very difficult. I mean, you know, being poor and being a woman is a terrible combination in the 19th century. It's a historian's job. Uh, to remain detached from everything, but it must have been quite hard. I have to say, well, it was the most emotive book I've ever written. I mean, you know, their stories really, I mean, it takes you to some very dark places um, and and it makes you see things around you. It makes, it makes you see homelessness around you. Um, I remember as I was writing um, about Polly Nichols' I was walking home one day um, and uh, walking through Trafalgar Square where um, Polly slept rough for a while and then went to Charing Cross Underground Station where there's an underpass where a lot of homeless people sometimes sleep. And there was a woman um, with her daughter uh, begging and I simply, I simply could not walk by her. Well, I think my life has changed from writing this book because they're things that I will never ignore again. I mean, well, as a historian, I've always been very aware of, for example, you know, things like the NHS, the importance of that. The welfare state is absolutely crucial because in the 19th century, people didn't have a safety net or the safety net they had was, was awful. I mean, the workhouse was designed to punish people. 
You know, you went into the workhouse and you were shamed. It was shameful. And all your neighbors knew that you were there and you were taught to feel ashamed of it as well. And it was it was a terrible existence. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. In your previous work, you've written about aristocrats, for example. How do you go about reconstructing the lives of very ordinary people who are a lot less documented? Mm. There are a lot less records available and quite often in this, with these five women, change their names. Yes. Well, I mean, that's, that's an interesting thing. I've also, I've, I've also written about um, prostitution in the 18th century. So, um, but starting from the document, um, the, the set of documents, which are the Harris's List of Covent Garden Ladies, which are absolutely phenomenal sources of information. In the 19th century, things are much better documented. So tracing the women through census, I'm the censuses, I'm glad I can wax lyrical about this because other historians are listening, but the censuses are just the most incredible set of documents because the information you can glean from the censuses are amazing. You know, you get this kind of very finite picture of life, of who lived in a house, of how they lived in a house, of um, what a neighborhood was like. Um, And you can follow, you know, I was able to follow the women through this. The censuses were hugely useful. Um, Birth and death records, hugely useful. Um, There's so much marvelous, colorful description of 19th century London. 
There's so much that you are literally spoiled for choice. So, you know, getting into those smells and sights and sounds is, is actually very easy. You know, I said I used um, a, a lot of, for example, social research and, and um, uh, what, what journalists were writing about. But also I went back and I looked at things like documentation um, uh, studies that were done about the housing of the poor also. And I think that's a good fairly impartial historical record as well to look at, you know, looking at what were the sizes of the rooms that the poor inhabited, um, what were the conditions of the houses, what was sanitation like, you know, there are entire surveys done on sanitation for places like Wolverhampton, for example, Um, you know, really boring stuff, Um, but um, actually quite interesting if you're trying to build up a picture of how people lived. And when you immerse yourself in that, you can then really get a much stronger sense of how people lived in that environment and what that experience of living in that environment would have done to them in terms of what choices they would have made in their lives um, and, and what psychological state they would have had to have been in to have endured that. We're fortunate because there were a number of newspaper interviews done with people who knew the victims. So you start with fragments of their life story and then you corroborate it with documents. A lot of what we know about the Ripper in general, in terms of witness statements and all of this, is from newspaper. Newspapers, as we know today, don't always tell the truth. And one of the things that I found, which was quite amazing, was that, you know, you get 10 different um, newspapers and you will get 10 different versions of what a witness said in the inquest Another important thing to bear in mind is the inquest, the coroner's inquests are the the sort of main body of evidence that we have to tell us what the witnesses said um, uh, and to give us a sense of how these women lived. But what came out of the coroner's inquests are a sort of amalgamation, a compilation rather, of everything that there is to know about Jack the Ripper. The interesting thing is actual corners that the inquest documents are missing for three of the five women. So what we have are newspapers. How do you know which ones are correct? That I found really very interesting. The Ripper, I think, in a lot of people's popular imagination is part of this bigger idea of the Victorian underworld. Whereas I think that's a myth that you dissect and you unpick in this book. Yeah, London was a very, very diverse city in terms of haves and have-nots. As somebody said to me, oh, well, you know, obviously, you know, they became prostitutes, so they all had to go to Whitechapel. (laughs) No, that's not how it worked. Actually, I mean, you know, there were pockets of poverty throughout London, even off the top of my head, you know, I mean, Places like, for example, St Pancras had a slum, was a very impoverished neighbourhood. Parts of Chelsea, parts of Fulham, Notting Hill, parts of Notting Hill, Notting Dale. Actually, the interesting thing was I was investigating this at about the time of the Grenville Tower disaster. And I was looking at Booth's poverty maps, which are extremely illuminating, and found that the area of extreme poverty in Notting Hill called Notting Dale is actually now where Grenfell Tower is. So these imprints of poverty are still with us in London. 
Um, there was poverty in Bermondsey. You know, there was there was poverty in Lambeth. There was poverty all over. And, you know, Holborn, Clerkenwell, all of these places. So all of these women did not have to go to Whitechapel to become prostitutes, nor was Whitechapel the only slum in London. There were lots of slums in London. Was there anything while you were re- researching the book that particularly surprised you or shocked you to discover? What surprised me the most was when I started investigating these accusations that they were sex workers and did not find any hard evidence in the case of three of them. That totally shocked me because actually I started writing this book. I set out to write this book because having explored sex work in the 18th century, I thought I really want to explore it in the 19th century. Who should I write a book about? Well, who are the most famous prostitutes of the 19th century? the victims of Jack the Ripper. And then I started investigating this and I just was not finding the evidence that you would normally find. I mean, Mary Jane Kelly is the exception. It appears on her death certificate that she was a prostitute. Um, All of the other women, it does not appear on their death certificate that they were prostitutes at all. I think there's a lot to be said about the fact that, for example, um, Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes um, all lived out of wedlock with men. Now, in the 19th century, I mean, it's quite interesting, very good example um, of, of how this way of thinking operated. So there were, say, refuges for women who were fallen. And if you look at who they admitted into these refuges, they fell into a number of categories. Women who had worked as prostitutes, women who were mistresses of men, women who um, were victims of rape, and women who were victims of incest. So this idea that any woman who has sex outside of marriage is damaged goods. You know, she has acquired, she's like Eve, you know, she's, she's eaten the forbidden fruit. She has acquired knowledge that is detrimental to her being as a woman. And so this idea that here are these women, they are in some cases, like Annie Chapman and Polly Nichols, they are still married, they separated from their husbands, there's great shame surrounding that. But in order to survive, because financially they can't support themselves, they then have to shack up with men. You know, um, and often it's a a succession of monogamous relationships. The Victorian mind, you know, these women are prostitutes. What else? What else could they be? This might be a completely impossible question for you to answer, but did one of the women in particular capture your imagination more than any of the others? Well, I think all, all of the stories touched me in different ways. Um, I think the two that really touched me the most, the first was Annie Chapman, because Annie Annie's story is, I, so, I think, so deeply tragic in that her family had this opportunity, they were actually moving beyond the sort of reach of of grinding poverty into the lower middle classes. And Annie's family, so her husband was um, working as as a coachman, head coachman for a gentleman. They lived on a country estate. They were putting money aside for their girls to go to schools. You know, they were moving up in society. And if Annie hadn't been an alcoholic, and she was really a chronic alcoholic, their lives would have been much better. And, and I think that that's incredibly tragic because 
poverty was so awful at that time, to have defeated that fate. It just seemed like there was almost a way out for her, but then there wasn't. And then Elizabeth Stride as well, I found absolutely fascinating. You know, I mean, the strength of character, I think that she demonstrated um, as an immigrant. I mean, she, Elizabeth found herself basically state-sanctioned uh, prostitution in Sweden, where she immigrated from, and was was rescued, as, as they would say in the 19th century, by a woman who took her in as a servant. And then she eventually immigrated to uh, Britain, to London. And she worked for a family near Hyde Park, very wealthy family as a servant. And she married, she married a carpenter, but things went very badly for her. And she kind of backslid into poverty. Um, and, you know, life was so precarious at that time. The book hasn't been published at the time that we're talking yet, um, but there's already been news stories um, about the mere discussion of the ideas in your book, um, especially it's provoked a reaction amongst people who would call themselves ripperologists. What are you anticipating on publication <laughs> and are you gearing up for a fight? I think people are entitled to their opinions, obviously. I think there is a strong sense of ownership of the material by the said group of people. I think I think they are unhappy that somebody from outside of their community, as they see it, is writing a book about this. I think it's a shame that people are so worried about it, um, so concerned about it. But if people talk about it, if they discuss it, if it, it if it makes people question a lot of what they consider to be truths, then a good thing has been done. That was Hallie Rubenhold. The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper, is out now in the UK, published by Doubleday. In the US, it's due out in a couple of weeks, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And you can read a version of this interview in the April issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now, and also includes pieces on The Great Escape, King John, The Amritsar Massacre, and a whole lot more. Look out for it in all good retailers now, and in our digital formats. And we've now come to the end of today's episode. But do listen in on Thursday when Nicholas Paul will be talking about the Crusades. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 